Welcome to uh, 2020. This is another Pro Video Coalition, uh, our, what we were calling our weeklyish uh, PVC News PVC podcast, where we're going to talk a little bit about what was going on in the last week and some other stuff that's probably not uh, older than a week. And uh, I'm rambling. So uh, I'm Scott Simmons, and we got uh, Damian Allen's on the uh, other side of the line over there. Damian, ha- happy Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year, 2020. Who knew? Yeah, who, who knew? And then uh, Mr. Gary Adcock up in Chicago is chatting with us once again. Thank you, Gary, and Happy New Year uh, to you as well. Hello, sir. Happy New Year to everybody. Well, okay, so the New Year always means CES, and there are always CES-related things in the film and video space. And hey, can I, I, can I just stop for a second oh there and say, God. yeah, I, I know, I'm just interrupting already. But I just think that is kind of the height of rudeness to basically ruin everyone's Christmas. All the guys that work CES basically don't have christmas oh man remember when mac world was like yeah it was the, the same day problem. after it's the same it was, thing yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd leave and take off the first of january to go you know there was a couple times i took off january one to to fly for mac world I well i did. i used to have to work through i used to do content for apple and the product managers would always say things like well i'll be here all christmas so you know dot 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 like, you. Of course, you, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, anyway apple had the sense to stop it yeah so, well I think that Apple was at CES this year on some uh, on some panel. It was was kind of a uh, you know they, they didn't have a booth, but they actually sent someone officially there to be on the panel. So I thought that was interesting because I I don't think they do that at NAB. I know they sort of float around on their own, but like I've never seen them officially be part of any any event or any uh, any panel discussions at NAB. So that was a uh, that was kind of cool. Know, that but- might change because of the new podcasting stuff they're doing. I mean, there's the the new podcast thing that's uh, uh, training that they're doing in LA with iJustine and and Future Media Concepts and all of that. I think maybe Apple might be focusing on that, and they might come back to doing seminars and things at NAB. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, I'd welcome it. Why why not? The more the merrier. I mean, it's great to see uh, you know the manufacturer of said product NLE whatever you know officially doing things. I I always think that bodes well for for us who use the products. You know, no, well, no I think it, I think it bodes well too with the Mac Pros. I think I think oh. because the Mac Pros are shipping, I think we'll see some of that technology oh, yeah. at, at NAP Pro. this year in a different way than we have before. And I think Apple's going to go out, you know, bring out the big guns if they're going to start showing their top of the line workstations. It would uh, it would make uh, good sense. I'm sure there were some Mac Pros on the floor of CES. I didn't see much discussion of it because everything was all about 8K, 8K televisions, 8K. Uh, I guess that's all 8K televisions. <laughs> yes. was there, that's about all I saw. <laughs> no, it might have been. It was probably a projector or three. I didn't right? see crap about you know acquiring 8K and how we're gonna you know all the stuff that, that need the pipeline to make I'm, 8K. It was. I'm all still about- trying to do 4K, so. You know, yeah. Well, and that and that's a good point. You know, there's so little 8K content that's out there. Um, you know, Phil Holland's PHFX is is it, Phil's been doing a good chunk of the demos for those for that yeah. content. He's one of the few people who actually produce enough like high quality 8K content for it. And you know, okay, so we've got Red, we've got an Ikigami camera. There's some mysterious Canon camera, you know, but there's not really enough devices and you know a, a wide range of devices that can actually acquire 8K. But how are we going to deliver this? And that gets to be a bigger issue because we're still having issues. We're still having the difficulty in delivering 4K HDR over yeah. the internet. When are we talking about something that's four times larger than that and how it's going to affect uh, workflows and everything else? It's, it's, it's an interesting question. I think we're still a few years away from a true 8K workflow, but I 
you know, and I, I'm a big believer in 4K. Well, I'll tell you, I uh, got up early on Christmas morning, and turned on my uh, Comcast Xfinity uh, X1 fancy box on my uh, new Sony Bravia 4K TV, and I saw no one was awake, and I had my coffee, and I saw that they have the fake um, fires, like the Yule logs, and they had one like a Christmas morning Yule log in 4K. And this wow. is not this is not through YouTube. This is straight off the Comcast Xfinity box. That is cutting edge right there. Well, I hit it and I hit play and I'm looking at it thinking, uh, that's really, I've seen uh, good 4K and that's not, it, it says 4K, but that didn't, yeah, the TV, TV said it was 4K, but it did not That's the problem with, with streaming 4K is by the time you throw the compression in, you might as well be a 2K. You know, well, I don't like think the, it, but that, I don't think that was streaming. If something's coming over the coax, officially branded from Comcast, in my mind, that's not streaming. So that should well, that should get know. as good as it gets, should it not? Well, here's the thing, right? If you got it, if you're at Comcast, and you got a choice between high quality Yule logs and ESPN at 4K playing well. You're going to throw the bandwidth towards ESPN, right? But they, I don't, they so, don't have that yet. I don't. I don't. Well, think they I'm have just it. saying. Yeah, like they've got so much bandwidth. Are they really going to? Bear that much bandwidth on your logs. Yeah, I, I get macro blocking and compression when watching. Uh, you know, our Titans have been doing very well in the playoffs, and the uh, the picture quality of the broadcast is terrible. The the macro yeah. blocking and the just the compression around movement on the on the field is just horrendous. And I've been on the phone with Comcast; they reset signals, and it's you know they're like, well, I think it's just the broadcast, and like yeah, you're you're supposed to be good, is it not Comcast? But anyway. I, so yeah, okay. So I digress back to AK. Yes, if we're not even getting 4K delivered through our most prominent uh, cable television provider, what in the world are we needing 8K TVs for? Well, then think about it from a flip side, Scott. Think about that. You know, the standard definition content on a television that we play on our 4K displays now. That's what's going to happen when we go to 8K with the, you know, the 1080 stuff. It's you know it's eight times larger, and how do we deal with this, and how is that going to affect the viewing public and everything else? And and I think it's really more an issue about compression and deliverables than anything else. And you know we're still working on satellites that were put in you know space 50 years ago. They're not really designed for this kind of technology. And a lot of the transmission satellites and broadcast satellites are still you know 20, 30 years old. And don't have the capabilities to do anything other than a fixed bandwidth signal back yeah. and forth from. So I think it goes back to what we've had the same conversation how many times over the years when we saw 3D TV, the first part of HD TV, when we saw yeah. the 4D, uh, the 4K TVs first coming out. It's the TV manufacturers trying to sell us more crap we don't need long before we're truly ready for it. Yeah. Would you consider that a true statement? I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think it's good because it it pushes the infrastructure so that we are ready to actually finally produce AK at some point. Um, I I still, you know, all my key TVs are 2K because I think by the time I'm eight feet away, and I, I I guess at this point, 4K is just such a standard feature that if I bought another TV now, it would be 4K. But in terms of viewing experience, I, I personally am not missing too much when I'm eight, 10 feet away from the box. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think HDR is the much more significant thing. And I think it's, it's kind of akin to the high DPI displays on iPhones. I remember when I, I was going, why, why do I need a, a high DPI iPhone, a retina display? And then after I'd had one for four or five months, I looked at my old phone and went, Oh my gosh, those pixels are huge. You know? And I think HDR is going to be the same thing where once, once we start getting real HDR TVs with, and real HDR content, 
that's going to be one of those ones where the consumers don't get it at first, but then once they've lived with it for a little while, there's absolutely no going back. Well, what, oh, is, I totally what is, agree with that. I, what's I totally real, agree. when you say real HDR content, though, I use my, my new Sony TV as an example, both uh, Amazon and Netflix. I updated my account to the, to the 4K HDR and I watch, uh, you know, the Aeronauts or I watch uh, the Irishman in 4K HDR and it does look good, but I, I, I'm not blown away by the HDR demos. I, I, the, you know, the HDR I'm seeing from Netflix and Amazon versus the XDR demos I've seen at NAB. And I realize that those are like as good as you get. But for some reason, I feel like it's not as good as it needs to be here in the home to make the average viewer go like, all right, I really need this. Yeah. Pop in a Blu-ray. Well, I, that, there's a good it, question. It, uh, uh, you know, pop in HDR, a Blu-ray and you'll see the difference, yeah. I do not have said player. Well, the other problem too is is consumer HDR is could be anything at this point, right? I mean, the actual quality, the ability of the television to output the dynamic range. You know, all the TVs are calling themselves HDR, but a lot of them uh, still have a fairly modest dynamic range in terms of their output. And then, uh, you know, it is still a wild west in terms of getting a good HDR signal that. You know, it, it could, the content could start out as beautiful HDR, but by the time it goes through all the compression on its way from the original uh, master can form through all the different bits and pieces to go out through Netflix or through Comcast or whatever, uh, I, I think that's part of the problem. I think you probably would find it here and there, but it's it's going to be another year or two before we really start seeing regular content. Well, the, the, the well, net, but we the also net brings up the part, this also brings up the part about, you know, we get to see it in, in its most native forms more than anyone else does. So, I mean, the people in the industry, uh, particularly post people get to see HDR in a way that no one else does. You know, Juan Savo had a thing on Twitter explaining the, the dynamic range of the Apple XDR display and how the, you know, it didn't exactly conform the way, you know, the Flanders scientifics do for HDR. And we see it, we see it pre-compression. So we have a different yeah. thought about HDR than a lot of people do. So we tend to be a, a lot more, um, aggressively supporting it while understanding that there's still steps after the fact that are changing and that are still being worked out. I mean, how many people look at, you know, the modified HDR10 stuff or how HLG works as opposed to looking at Dolby and Dolby's technologies? So, well, I, you know, I'm just going to play average consumer here then because that's kind of what I seem like I am. I have this brand new TV that, you know, you go pick up at Costco that, that is a, you know, it's a marketing thing. You've got HDR, you've got Dolby Vision, you've got all this stuff that this thing supports. You don't have any cables going from one box to another because the apps are built in. You test your 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 down, your bandwidth speed. You've got more than enough for Netflix's uh, HDR 4K tier and you hit play and it's and it's just kind of like, eh, it's okay. I mean, it's maybe it's a little better than, than than what I had before, but I, I don't know. Well, I do think I do think part of that will be that once once the majority of the content is HDR and you're used to watching it, if you then go over to a friend's house who doesn't have an HDR TV, you go, uh, oh my gosh, that thing looks so flat. Like that is, it's a subtle thing, and you know, you don't instantly go, oh my gosh, look at how rich that sunset looks. You know, you go, oh, this picture's pretty, and then as you become accustomed to it, that's when you're going to notice the difference. And that's why I think it's going to be a longer sell than like HD was kind of a no brainer, right? I mean, different aspect ratio, the whole thing. It still yeah, took a it while. Was a long sell for yeah, it. it took a yeah, long we, time. We spent, a, we spent 10 years trying to get people to go to HD. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, I started, 
I, I, I converted my office to HD in 99. And it wasn't until 2008, 2009, you know, the digital conversion in 2009, 2010, the start of this decade, that that actually started being fulfilled in ways that we could see the content that we were, you know, producing. And that's actually a big part of this is that it takes five to seven years for these technologies in. So if we're talking about 8K now, you can expect in seven to 10 years, 8K will be mainstream. But right now, it's a different story. Well, they are broadcasting, if I understood this correctly, the Summer Olympics in Japan. Or, uh, aren't they, no, where are they at? Are they in Seoul, I think? Yeah, in Tokyo. Tokyo. Yeah, uh, okay, in Tokyo. So they are uh, live broadcasting 8K, and it, it and then there's like been a, a mandate that it be in 8K. So maybe we can consider that the start of 8K, and we've got seven years from the summer. Well, and, and to further at that point it's it's a real press by um you know nhk ikigami the consortiums in japan to promote this they've gone so far as to buy literally thousands of set and build thousands of 8k sets to display this publicly around tokyo oh so interesting around the venues they're going to put them out in public so people can see 8k in reality and broadcast and particularly in the in the venues they're going to short range broadcast it so they can just the set can just receive it and i think that's going to be a fascinating sidebar to this to push 8k but again like anything else you, you know damien mentioned espn is going to get more of the signal and and sports has always been a major driving factor in all of this but we're still not seeing sports in 4k yeah. and mm -mm. most of us have been doing 4k for you know at least the last 10 years play, dabbling in it if nothing else I, I will say the other thing that 8k like paves the road for is some kind of VR deliverables down the road. I mean, I'm, I'm talking 10 years out, but at that point, that's the kind of resolution you need for satisfying 8K. Oh my God. VR, VR. Oh, I'm just Lord, saying, I'm not saying today, I'm saying 10, <laughs> 15 years. Everyone knows I'm a, I'm a potty pooper when it comes to VR, but, uh, but and I'm a skeptic. Uh, I, yeah, I am. But, uh, I t you know, I, I, I love it though, because I develop for it, but, um, as a consumer medium, until we've got 8K streaming from a head end, there's no way you're going to get any kind of satisfying experience. So 8K, 10 years down the road may actually, you know, once we've got head glass light, uh, you know, uh, what do you call them? Sunglasses sort of style VR, then maybe 8K will be ready for that. Well, speaking of that, I believe Panasonic showed some uh, HDR uh HDR uh, UHD capable VR glasses at NAB. Yeah, they that, silly. Well, they, yeah, they they were very uh, steampunk steampunk looking. But I mean, I mean they were cool. But I I'm sure I, they I'm sure they're heavy. I'll tell you what they weren't is a big humongous box you're strapping onto your yeah. head. So that's a plus. Well, no, but here's the problem: is if you ever you know those active shutter glasses when you go see 3D in those 3D I movies. Do. Yeah. And by by 30 minutes in, your nose is killing you because that thing is just. Digging into your nose because all the waste <laughs> vibrating there. on your nose. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The thing about a, a like an Oculus Rift is is you've got that whole head mount carrying the weight, whereas those things it's all on your nose. So I I, I have a feeling that would be a pretty painful experience after. I, I haven't touched them, so I don't know, but I heard reports from people that were playing with them in CES that they did have a bit of weight to them. They look like they'd be heavy, but yeah, it goes back to that same thing. It's just this big thing you're shoving on onto your head. Whether it's the box strapped on, or whether it's heavy glasses, or what, it's it's. Boy, I just still think well, that's being a be... glasses wearer. I'm one of those people who's not afraid of that. So since I've worn glasses my entire uh, life, and the... and that's one of those 
accommodations that people who wear glasses are less susceptible to the attitude around wearing a heavier glass, heavier, heavier mm. lenses on their face than people who don't wear glasses at all. That makes so. sense. It does make sense. I, I'm a glasses wearer. When I put on the 3D glasses at the at the theater, you know, I'm putting them on over the top of my glasses, and and yeah, it's awkward. But once you get the right position, and especially if you have one of the nice reclining chairs, you can almost get to the point where the weight is just right, and you can sit there for a couple of hours without too much too much adjustment. I, I don't know if those Panasonic. I, I will make a there. suggestion for you. Get my Two own things. pair. Uh, buy, <laughs> my my buy prescription a pair. pair. Buy a theater. No, 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 no. Actually, Polaroid used to stop make going. Glasses. Stop. Polaroid made 3D, real 3D glasses that were designed to fit over your standard glasses, and you could buy them. and I think you can get them online for like nine dollars a pair now. Actually, I got. I'll send you a pair, Scott. I got some. Oh. Yeah, I've, I've got a couple <laughs> pairs, too. Remind me next time. Send me a note, and I'll, I've, I've got, like, because I bought, like, 10 pairs of them because I like them so much to fit over my glasses. But I also have a prescription pair of real 3D glasses that I did when I was doing a lot of 3D work. Because, oh, you, know, cool. you know, a decade ago, I was doing a lot of 3D. So I actually had a pair of uh, prescription glasses made with real D, real D, uh, real 3D, real, real D, real D, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Personally, I can't even say that was 3D. <laughs> personally, I tried to avoid the 3D movies like The Plague, but I believe it was oh. Gemini Man I did go see in 3D to try you to. You know get what? The... I, after, because I, I, I ran a stereoscopic conversion studio back in that craze for a couple of years, at, I actually have some kind of PTSD where I, I try it. My wife accidentally booked 3D tickets to one of the movies once, and we just went, oh. Because I sit there, and I'm going, oh, my gosh, look at all those objects that have to get depth mats for all of those. Oh. It just freaks me out. So She's, she's smacking <laughs> you, and she sits beside you. So I mean, exactly. what else was at CES? I, don't, I did see a thing where uh, I believe that Samsung has a new, uh, the, you know, the T5 uh, SSD drives. They've got a new T7 coming out. It's got a fingerprint reader in it. I love those little things. The, the capacity is going up. The price is still pretty good. I thought that was cool. Thunderbolt but, 4. I, I'm sorry? Thunderbolt 4 was mentioned in the Intel press conference. Is this going to be faster than Speed of Light? Or what's it's gonna, 80. Yeah, it's 80 gigabits per second. So it's twice as fast as the current generational stuff. Same kind of connector? It's the same the connector and the same protocols. And what they have to do that for is actually much more for the DisplayPoint 2.0 generation stuff. They have to increase the bandwidth to be able to take the 8K. So the Thunderbolt, USB 4, Thunderbolt 4 uh, connectivity has been announced as Intel. They, they didn't release any of the data, though. It was just dropped in a, in a press meeting about being, you know, the next generation chipset being fully compatible with Thunderbolt 4. And that's an interesting thing because there's literally no data about it they put out. The assumption with people like me is that it's going to be an 80, get 80 gigabit connectivity. Um, so twice as fast as the current generation of Thunderbolt. But that's, that's kind of interesting when you start thinking that we start seeing the cables that are coming in. You know, the USB-C connector is Thunderbolt, it's USB-C, but it's also the same connector that's, that's been adopted for DisplayPoint 2.0. So wow. this... Cabling technology is actually going to be the interesting part about all of this because I've had some serious issues with Thunderbolt cables from third-party manufacturers. I have one that I found the other day. I used it to charge my laptop. Brand new cable I pulled out of a box. I used it once to do a drive. Everything was fine. You know, three, three gigs a second data transfer is perfect. I used it as a power cord for a while. 
put it back on my laptop. I can't get more than 34 megabits across it now. Wow. Same cable after it was used for power would not allow me to do bandwidth issues. Yeah. Now, it's so a third-party cable that? by a not manufacturer, but it's, you know, I good question what would cause it. I have no idea. Well, Scott, you know, what, but it's I interesting. That's, there's a lot of, there's a lot more amperage going through those USB-Cs, right, than uh, like a typical. Well, it's 100 watts, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's 100, so 100 watts of power. So it's, it's the so spec. if it's a cheap cable, one of the connections was a little cranky. That that now it's intermittent. I can see that. It's well, that's we talk about the new we talk about the new you know XDR display that requires or the new laptop that requires 85 watts of power. Come yeah. on, I mean that's gonna that's gonna start showing people it's gonna melt how the bad cable. some of the cables actually are. Yeah. Mm. Is that possibly one of these things where when you get this technology out in mass, these problems arise that didn't arise when you had just small subsets of the market testing them and working with them? Well, of course, but it's also, you know, the the commodity market on how some of those things are made where you pay the cheapest part to keep the price down in the cables. And, you know, cables are one of those things, particularly Thunderbolt cables are one of those things that I've always burned through in my entire yeah. career in quantities. I, I got to confess. Optical cables a long time ago. After, after you spend all that money on the thing and you have to spend another $120 on a cable and someone else is offering one for 20 bucks, it's like, nah, I just got the 20 buck one. But you you regret it. Yeah, I, I got it for you Christmas. You regret it after the first time you use it. Yes. Yeah. Well, for Christmas, I got a, one of those docks that like charges your phone, your your watch, and your AirPods all on one. And I think the Belkin one was like, I don't know, like 80 bucks or something. And this one was like a cheap Chinese ripoff that was maybe 20 bucks. And it's just a piece, total piece of crap. Barely works. Half time doesn't charge. The, the the watch goes on and off all night as you hear the little ding when you put it on to charge. And, and that's a awesome. case in point. You know, it's just cheap, cheap crap that doesn't work very well. And it's, I guess, rampant. You're right when it becomes a commodity and everybody makes them and everybody makes them cheap. Well, I mean, you know, that's that's the problem with the commoditized way that everything is sold nowadays, particularly online. You look at some of the things that have popped up on, you know, dealing with Amazon and how, you know, 20 to 30 percent of the content stuff you have on Amazon is is regurgitated from, you know, single source suppliers. That's all, you know, barely covering the lim minimals for how it has to be made and tolerances and everything else. And that's a big deal. And when you look at the the fraud market on Amazon for designer goods or anything else, it's not any different in our world where it's, you know, a couple of people buying really cheap parts and putting a new name on it and selling it as something else when it's really the stuff that's been rejected by the manufacturers. Totally. It, make, it really makes you wish that Amazon, in, in their infinite wisdom and the, the data that they are able to collect, could not somehow stop the cheap crap from being sold through their, through their business. Well, and it's going to cost them, right? Because uh, to some degree, they're involved in the return fulfillment and stuff. I know they push that back on the individual vendors, but there's still there's a lot of overhead that goes with having to shut those places down when they keep getting returned uh, yeah. so so you would think it would be in their best interest to vet at least the the worst offenders earlier but i don't know it's, it's such a massive machine amazon it, it you know that's the least of their worries probably yeah at least at least when you walk into a physical walmart and you know you're buying cheap crap at least on that <laughs> when, you, when you're on amazon you're you can tell from the what? packaging yeah i can get some good stuff on here because you can get some good stuff on there but that's it's tempting when you search for that you know uh USB charger, and you're like, oh, Belkin. Oh, look at that. Uh, you know, what? I can't pronounce the name of some of them. And you know, the, the, the only problem is, is 
every third one of those turns out to be great. Like I, I remember paying like what fifty or sixty bucks for the Apple iPhone case, right? The little uh, one right. with the kind of felt inliner, and then. Uh, one of my friends bought one for 10 bucks. That was a no name. It's probably from the same factory. Um, but I bought one of those and that thing's lasted just as long or maybe even a little bit longer, you know? So you just, every now and then there's enough of it, of them that actually work that keep me being a sucker to buy another one. Oh, I know. We all want to save money. Uh, don't deny yeah. that. Any other stuff from NAB? I think we had a couple of cameras that were. I don't follow the camera news, but well, CES, but yes. Yeah. Wait, um, what, I, what did I say? Panasonic, I said NAB. Panasonic released a couple of 4K like uh, fixed lens cameras, zooms attached, but non-interchangeable. Um, 4K because the Handycam style is still, you know, using a Sony term, is still very popular. JVC released a Connect Cam. That's the one that has got uh, a Wi-Fi built into it, so it can stream directly from the camera. I mean, so there was a lot of that from on the the lower end. I mean, those are those are lesser quality, lesser price products, not lesser quality, but lesser price products because mm -hmm. they're you know they're sub three thousand, sub four thousand dollars, and designed for spot news organizations and that kind of environment. So you know, it's a big deal when they we start getting an old form factor coming back in a new format, four K. So, I just noticed the you know the Canon One DX Mark III they released. 5.5k 60 frames per second raw in video mode that that's kind of just a bit ridiculous um you know in a in something that's actually a, a still camera that just happens to do video uh it's it's kind of uh you know talking about going to 8k uh, you're getting that from your still cameras these days it's 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 a bizarre world but are yeah, we not in a place like good ahead, scott are we not at a place now where if you need video, you're not buying a damn DSLR? I, I or think whatever so. I anymore? do think so. I think that's unless you're a video, unless you're a wedding cinematographer, right? Because then you're yeah. shooting stills and you want to flip over to video mode. Or, uh, or a parent, because uh, I'll be a hypocrite. I did just that with the Sony Alpha, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and occasionally use it on you know real video shoots, but it's uh, you know. I, they're they're always both going to have a place in the world. Yeah, I, I mean, my thing with the 1Ds is the 1Ds have always been pushing the envelope for Canon, both in um, physical raster and pixel depth and everything else. But the one thing they've never done really well is record video. I mean, they, the the very first, you know, 1D was did 4K video and it took six minutes before it, you know, melted down because of the Yeah, heat. that's true. That's true. And, and they're never really designed for I that. I do and wonder about 5.5K, 60 frames per second raw, what that, how long <sighs> you could shoot that. Yeah, especially if you're recording it internally, what are they recording it to? Yeah, exactly. And it's we've massive. Got, we've got issues too, so. Hey, one other thing that, uh, you know, I, it was in line with CS, but AMD announced their... 64 core Threadripper, the 3990X, which is conveniently $3,990 retail. Um, but that's to me a, um, a good way that things are going. You know, uh, for a long time we had Moore's Law, it kind of died out around 2010, around that time. Uh, and we're finally kind of going to parallel processing. And I think it's a good thing because I think developers are, are really actually starting to optimized code for multiprocessing now. And this this could actually see a massive boom in the performance of our uh, workstations. We start getting those kinds of suckers uh, inside under the hood. But that, that's, that's a straight up CPU though and not a GPU, right? Yeah, just a CPU. So that's the thing uh, is 
you know, GPUs have been in the hundreds and thousands of cores for a while now, uh, but they're, they're very specific. If they're designed for uh, machine learning or designed for crunching graphics, uh, they can only do so much, whereas getting massive multi-cores on a CPU means you can pretty much throw anything at it without having to really optimize your code using uh, some API like CUDA. Um, so it's, you know, to me, it's very interesting. I mean, all the apps I use are uh, pretty much heavily multi-threaded at this point. Uh, but it does mean something like, or, you know, if I had to have eight machines for a render farm, now I have one machine and that's my render farm, you know, or, or a couple of those guys and you're off to the races. So looking forward to seeing what that really looks like when it's installed in a system. And even as it's four grand just for the CPU, we're probably talking about six or seven grand once you throw some RAM and a motherboard and the other bits and pieces. But it's it's not an unreasonable amount to spend on a mm-hmm. on a main workstation. So. Will that be faster uh, than Apple a thinks fifty thousand is good for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying well, the same actually, that's Scott. a good point, yeah. right? I mean, uh, you could build a PC for seven or eight grand with sixty-four cores. I don't know how that would compare to. That's that's actually one of the problems. I've one of the concerns I have with things like that uh, field programmable gate array that they put in the new Mac. The you know uh, I'm I don't know. I'm sure um, you guys probably remember Media One Hundred tried to do something with FPGAs. They may may have even been ASIC with their um, Pegasus or whatever. I, they renamed it eventually, but you, you you bet against Moore's law and uh, you run into problems. So if, if you build very customized hardware, it could be a year or two later that the CPU is doing what you're trying to do on a specialized hardware system. Um, so I, I you know it would be interesting to see what the performance is like once we get those on the street. So here's another parallel to NAB. Apparently, uh, you can now walk into Lowe's or Home Depot, buy a bright yellow battery, and shove it onto your video camera, and it will power it. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. It was a it was a post from by Michael Sutton from Kessler Crane, and it was they're using Dewalt, you know, rechargeable batteries for power tools. Um, it delivers, you know, a certified 14.4 volts and 3. Uh, 3.5 amps or 3.2 amps or something like that um, of power. Um, and because those batteries are so much cheaper than and Anton, you know, Bauer. Anton Bowers or Hawks or, or anybody other battery company, when I read whatever battery company you do, it's an interesting way to do that to power a lot of smaller devices and devices that are more common uh, for filmmakers that don't necessarily use the big tools. Um, I think it's really designed for, you know, independent crews, small crews, schools, um, places like that that have resources, uh, you know, power tools and things like that around. And, and you know, think about it from the flip side. Everybody's got screw guns and everything else on their set. I don't happen to use DeWalt. I use Bosch stuff. So mine's not going to work. But see how that, you know, I've got five or six rechargeable batteries for my screw guns when I for set building. And, you know, that's an interesting sidebar to all of this, to be able to power small yeah. devices, motion control rigs. I mean, think about being able to, using it for motion control rigs, which Kessler makes some of, um, to be able to handle that in a way, in a very, very remote location with, with the simplest tools possible. And you is know what? It, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, can, you, will it, can you use it for cameras or is it designed more for all the other stuff? Well, not there's, just- a P-tap, there's a P-tap on the plate. But you know, then you're then you're limited to you know that. But but yeah, in theory, you could see one of, one of the problems with Anton Bowers because they're so expensive. People tend not to have the 
two backups they probably need for shoot. They'll go with, you know, maybe one extra battery. If it, you know, we're talking about indies. Um, so this, if you could buy four of those DeWalt style batteries um, for the same price, you know, that's a, that's pretty amazing. And I, I think what's interesting is the argument's going to be, oh, you know, you can't risk your camera to that kind of hardware. But in theory, if they put the right capacitors and the right uh, line filters in the electronics, uh, there's no reason why a DeWalt shouldn't be able to deliver a, a nice healthy power supply without spikes like anything else you know it's just a matter of electronics enough the the right capacitors uh you know the right um kind of filtering inside the electronics and even if you've got a, a little bit of an uneven source coming from the battery the capacitor should even that out um so I, I think if they did design it right it actually probably would be safe to use on your cameras it's an well but think about idea. all the other stuff that's but think about all the other stuff that's not cameras you can use it on lighting audio you know yeah um, there's a hundred other things that we use batteries for right. that monitors monitors tons yeah, of things sure. that we could do that that don't require don't have the are not susceptible as much to the power fluctuations as a camera would be so you look at it as a diversification of the cruise and you know hey you can go up to a teamster and get a battery <laughs> would Kessler have had to go to DeWald and say hey we're looking at doing this or is or could could you just do it and say and i'm, I'm sure that they they obviously did extensive testing well the bigger to but the bigger question is what about um like the v mount or whatever like how do they license that from anton bauer or whoever or those open standards now i i thought they're they kind were, of open standards thanks. there's there's a small charge for v mount versus you know um gold mounts um yeah you know, Sony tends to to charge less than Anton Bauer, but the Anton Bauer connectors tends to be more universally Universal. accepted in the United yeah. States. It, well, it's a, it's it's a better connector. But I mean, could Anton always, Bauer has always fallen off? Could Anton Bauer turn around and say, well, "We're not going to license it to you"? Well, sure. Or is it? I mean, so because it sounds like that if that thing really took off, it could get their market a little bit. That's the tricky world of uh, companies, I guess, working together and sometimes against each other. Yeah. Well, and batteries are one of those things that everybody needs for everything nowadays. Yeah. That, well, that's that's true. I want to I want a Dewalt adapter for my phone. That's what that's what they should do. That'd be cool. <laughs> or a laptop. Like you own that's, your phone. That, that's what you need. Probably there. Um, so this is an interesting thing I saw uh, earlier in the week, and it's in a Los Angeles Times article that's behind a paywall that I cannot read the whole thing. But uh, for-profit film school turned their Hollywood dreams into student debt nightmares. So I was scanning down it, and it reads about like a uh, you know, your typical article these days about for-profit colleges that have really sort of been uh, almost predatory predatory on people who want to uh, want to learn. But I see it was Video Symphony. And I think, wait, Video Symphony, I remember them from way back when. I have tons of friends out in L.A. who trained with them, got certified. I think I could have sworn they like would sell DVD sets. But Video Symphony was a huge name in the uh, in the training industry for post post-production back in the day. And now they're they've I don't know if they've gone out of business, but they're being sued. And uh, it's kind of crazy. I wish I could get behind the Los Angeles Times paywall and read this article. Did any of you guys read it? I saw references to it, but I, I didn't read it because I've been dealing with other things for the last 10 days. But but it's an interesting thing because, I mean, there's a lot of situations with that. 
But from what I did read, which was in the Washington Post, was more about the, the, the guy who found it. And I can't remember what his name is right now. But he was actually going after the individual students for the money that they supposedly didn't have to pay under the government contract. And it was like, you know, the government covered so much of it under ETP, as, as it's called in California. Uh, and it was very, very interesting that he actually now turned his business into a debt collector for all the people that owe his former business that got shut down by the government um, all the money that they owe them. Yeah, and Flan Flanagan of, was the Flanagan. Was the, uh, oh, that's right. Yeah. Name. But so, think about that, that he's actually going after um, – after he's been ruled an illegal entity and shut down, he's saying, no, you signed a contract with me and you still have to pay me for what I didn't deliver to you because we were shut down. Well, you the know, comment thread on, on the, the, this where I saw the article on, on Facebook, you know, comment threads are always interesting. And of course, we don't we're not lawyers. We don't know the ins and outs behind this case. So, you know, we're just sort of speculating on what we've read on online, which, you know. You often do on podcasts, and uh, some of the people t talking about it were one people that had gone to Video Symphony, and that they had had this person attempt you're right to collect to collect personally. Like it's like instead of you paying back, you know where the loans came from, I, I want you to pay me, and I'll alter your terms a bit. Where maybe I don't know if they would end up paying less, or if, if there was trying looked like he was trying to make some incentive to pay back him directly instead of paying back, you know, whatever the loan entity was. And so it these just, just real just, fishy. So these guys commenting, were they saying that these were things they thought were a free ride from the government, and all of a sudden he's, or or was this a portion that they were always expected to pay? But never I did. think they, I think they knew because they took out, you know, they took out a loan that they thought they would have to pay it back. But See that, they, that to me is a little bit different. But so basically, let you know, let me just try to defend Video Symphony for a second. Yeah, you know, just because the news always paints things, and I want to be careful we don't misrepresent. To me, that sounds like okay. He offered them a loan. And they always knew they were going to have to pay it back. And now he's asking to collect, but give, saying, well, give you a discount where they thought they got off scot-free because the place went bankrupt. To me, that's a little different. You know what I'm saying? Like that is well, something but, that they but, but owe money on. But he's charging them for their full contractual obligation and he was shut down. And some of them had 14 or more months of, it was the well, number. That's I, different. Well, yeah. If it's, if it's on it's, stuff they haven't, you know, if it's for materials they never got, obviously that would be, um, a bad deal, but it's, I mean, it's like anything like that. It's a real, it's a real gray area. I'm sure yeah. there's lots of, he said, she said, I, I find it interesting that it was whatever happened. Uh, I mean, you know, he, he had, there were charges filed against video symphony and it was, look, it seemed like it was a pretty big deal from what I could glean from when I saw the article. So something went down and, and it read to me, like it went back to the, you know, I think about like what's like University of Phoenix and uh, you know a lot of these 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 colleges that popped up that were and I used to teach for one and I think it's still open here Art in Nashville. Yeah. Art institutes had some of the same thing where they were it was all about getting students uh, who could get student loans and and the and the I don't want to name the one I was teaching for some here in Nashville, but there were lots of uh, veterans that were that were there and they were specifically going after GI Bill students and they right. knew that they could get a lot of money because these students could easily get easily get loans. And I always, you know, when I saw what was going on and thought about it, it sort of reminded me of the whole payday loan thing where it's that whole, you know, the payday lenders will, will, will go to their death saying we're providing a service that people need, but yet the, 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 the stats and the reality of payday loans is that far more people 
they hurt way more people than they help. And, yeah. you know, perhaps that's what has happened with these pay, these for profit colleges is they end up putting you in so much debt that, you know, collectively it's worse off for the world than it was, you know, before they came along. And that, that maybe that's kind of what this video symphony thing was. I just, you know, I just thought it was when I saw the name, I was like, wow, because I know for a time it was it was huge. It was a huge training center. I knew tons of people that, that went through there yeah. in some capacity. So times change. That's, Hey, you know what? I need to hop off, but I, I, I remembered, I do have to make one clarification from the last podcast. So, uh, I, I made some comments about, uh, my frustration with it, with, uh, the Z eight twenties, um, and the Z 800, uh, cases. And I, HP actually got, got in touch with me actually, uh, not, aggressively they just said hey we want to know what the issues are and i want to clarify because i don't want i never want to paint a company in a bad light but uh i i had issues with occasionally with the way the um uh the the pci slot cover closes but i, I want to clarify and say i actually to this day have z800s and z820s from uh, you know, that are getting on in the years but still happily in service uh so i'm not a hater on hp by any means um I just wanted to clarify that because I may have come off as being a little, a little harsh in the last podcast. You're a good man. Uh, we 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 uh we it, often criticize those we love because we want them to. Be well, and, and and it's nice to show that we're we're also good enough people to come up and say, hey, you know, we we do this and we're not perfect, and we like to make sure that everybody knows that we make mistakes too. <laughs> and, and let me clarify too. I, as far as I'm aware, HP is not a sponsor of Pro Video Coalition, or at least I'm not aware of it. So it's not. Uh, you know, this is a, a tight industry and they do make good machines. Um, I mean, the fact that I have a Z800 that I still use for my motion capture studio, uh, because there's no reason to replace it. It just hums away. It does its job. And it must be, that thing must be like 10 or so years old. Never oh, missed a beat. And, so. I have my, and, and I have my feet up on mine underneath my desk <laughs> as it turns away on a, on a graphics file right now. There you go. So there you go. Cool. All right, I'm going to I'm going to hop off.